So we have this first of 16, this parable, there was a rich man who had a manager, and then we find out in 1614 the Pharisees were lovers of money, so a parable about a rich man might have particular uh, application to them. And then, lo and behold, here in 1619, now there was a rich man. Now, there is a debate about whether or not this is a parable, but the fact that it starts basically the same way as the one does in 16.1, and about the same way a bunch of other parables in Luke start, makes me think it probably is. The only thing about it that I think people really find difficult is he actually names a name, and this is the first time he names a name. Now, I mean, the good Samaritan is a Samaritan, but he doesn't name the personal name. But... Lazarus is a name that means God has helped. It was also the third most common male name in Jesus' day. So it's just a common name, and maybe the idea that God has helped is an implication that the rich man shouldn't help him. Uh, So I suspect it's easier to account for the fact that he just names a name in a parable than the fact that he starts this the same way and and it's, it's, it's not a parable. So I don't really care. I don't think it matters a great deal. <coughs> but, uh, but that's my view. So why don't we read it? I want somebody read 19 to 31. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides... Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. All right, so you got these two guys. Um, the rich man, what's his life like? Splendor. Yeah, he's got it made in the shade, drinking lemonade or whatever. Uh, very, um, you know, at ease, things are going well. And then there's this beggar always at his gate that doesn't even get the crumbs. So he's not concerned about anybody but himself, it looks like, in this uh, first scene. Whereas, uh, how is Lazarus? Covered with sores, hungry, being tenderized by dogs. Yeah, Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that the dogs are finishing off their meal, licking his wounds. 
Some people have thought the dogs were a comfort. I more, I more see them as a nuisance or kind of an aggravation. You can think about that how you want to, but they didn't have pet dogs so much in the first century. So I'm seeing these as uh, not not a positive thing. Notice also, how did Lazarus get to the gate of the rich man every day? Was laid at. Which makes me think he couldn't even walk. Somebody had to carry him. You know, so he's he's in bad shape. And he's longing for the crumbs that the rich man won't let him have. Uh, so he's, he's you know, hungry. Um, and so it's just a bad situation for Lazarus. The rich man is, is great. Then they both die. You know, death is democratic. There's one for everybody, no matter how rich or poor you are. And uh, quite a different scene after the death. Because where is the, where is Lazarus? Yeah, he's in Abraham's bosom in a place of paradise. And where is uh, the rich man? Yeah, he's in torment. He's he's uh, in, in bad shape and just almost reversed the roles, almost reversed the circumstances. And, uh, you know, how bad is it for the rich man? <clears throat> he wants a drop of water. The one who wouldn't give Lazarus a crumb is begging for a drop. And where does he want that water? Is that appropriate? What all the what he ate all that food with that he didn't give to Lazarus, you know? So I mean, that's kind of like the 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 part that may be uh, most relevant here. Uh, he showed no mercy. Now he begs for mercy. Um, you know, I mean, everything was. Splendid for him before. Now, now he's desperate. So it, it really is quite a reversal of the roles, and you know it shows you some things. I mean, it shows you that the state here after death is kind of a reflection of their life on earth. I mean, you know how we treat others is a big factor in what happens to us eternally, and you know what's Abraham's uh, answer to the rich man's request to send Lazarus for a drop of water. There are two parts. The first is, you already got your share of good things. That's right. So, yeah. It's a little late for that. And? The second is, there's this big chasm. <clears throat> so you can't cross over. You know, which t- makes me think that it's teaching that our destiny after death can't be changed. You know, the gulf is fixed. And once you die, I mean, that's that's the end of anything to change your destiny. Which is really... I think it's probably the most sobering thing about about our lives and, and death is we're used to things that we can change, you know, maybe there's a way out or whatever, but after you die, nothing that happens after you die has any bearing on on your state. So that's that makes, you know, the urgency in being what we ought to be in this life. Um, but I'll tell you something else that doesn't change once you die. I think it's your character. Look at the rich man after he dies. How is he the same after he dies as he was before? Once, once, once. Once the drop for himself, and then once... For his... Family to be warned, exactly. So he's thinking about himself and family. (laughs) How does he see Lazarus? Well, I thought it was weird that he thought Lazarus should bring it. I know. (laughs) He still sees himself superior to him and as if he could order Lazarus to do whatever, right? 
You know, that's what it looks to me like. Habits of a lifetime die hard. So it looks to me like, if there's a lesson in that, it's that you really aren't changed after you die in terms of your basic character and nature and attitude. Um, and so, so that's just interesting. And of course, the request to go warn his brothers, what's Abraham's idea about that? Like they've already been warned. They've got the law of the prophet. Yeah, I mean, if the written word of the Lord won't convert you, neither will a Lazarus coming back from the dead. You know, there's kind of a false premise in what the rich man was thinking, but like there's something greater than the word that would convince them when the word wouldn't. And, you know, Abraham says no. In fact, he says, but if somebody will go back from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I think instinctively we think that's not true. No, no, but if somebody goes from the dead, then they listen. But think about it. What proves they wouldn't? Lazarus did raise from the dead. Yeah, a different Lazarus, but... They tried to kill him. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to kill him again, you know, when I put him to death again in chapter 12 of uh, John, they didn't, it didn't change him, it didn't convince them. And what about when Jesus rose from the dead? What do they do then? Made up the story and... <laughs> Bribed the guards to tell it. Yeah. So what does that show you? You know, somebody who doesn't want to believe, it doesn't matter if somebody was risen from the dead. They still won't believe. You know, if, if your heart's insensitive to the word, it's not reachable. It's... The, the reason people don't believe is not because there's just not good enough evidence. That's not the reason. That's what, that's what he's really saying. The word's good enough. And we think, well, but I've, I've been there and seen Jesus and his miracles. Well, there was a whole bunch of people who were there and saw Jesus and miracles who weren't converted. Why do I think I'd be different? If the word doesn't, then Jesus and his miracles would. But if it doesn't, then they wouldn't. Um... It is interesting that he doesn't want his family to come there. You know, you kind of think, well, you know, if my if my loved ones are lost, then, you know, I want to be with them. Well, they don't want you to be with them. You know, even though they're selfish, they don't want you to be in a place that bad. So, I mean, this story to me ought to influence us like the next time I'm tempted to be greedy. You know, to think about, well, look at, the, look at this situation. I mean, it ought to sober the Pharisees up and us up about, you know, the consequences of, you know, just valuing our possessions too much. Thoughts and comments on that whole story. There's a lot of stuff in it. The thing, thinking of it, you know, this story in a kind of a literal sense, the, the chasm fixed, it's so that those who <clears> wish <throat> to come over from here to you will not be able to. And part of me is like, I can see the good people in Abraham's bosom looking over and seeing their agony and going, I want to help them. And they're not allowed to. Right. I think that's the only reason I can think of why you'd want to go over there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that kind of a thing. So. Yeah. What would you say to people who use this to be dogmatic about what happens after you die and you know it's going to be just like this and you know is there something we can learn from that should we be dogmatic about it oh I'm not I don't think I know what happens when we die 
Uh, I'm not sure that this tells us much about that. I'm not sure that's the purpose. Um, I mean, things like, you know, you can't go from one to the other and your destiny's fixed. I think that's reasonable from that. To try to say, you know, okay, so we're going to be able to have conversations back and forth and, you know, things like that. You know, we're going to be able to see each other, you know, and some things of that. I, I don't know if that's really what it's trying to tell us or not. That seems, you know, maybe so. I mean... If it was a real story as opposed to a parable, you might be able to push that a little bit farther. But I really think it's better to take it as a parable. And so a parable is teaching a lesson. It's an illustration. It's not necessarily... I don't assume that the Good Samaritan... I mean, that didn't really happen that way. It's just an illustration. It's an illustration that everybody understands. It's just an illustration. Um, So... I would, if if somebody asked me, you know, what do you know about the time between your death and your resurrection? I'd say not much. You know, this is worth considering. There are some statements where Paul will like say, I'd rather die and be with the Lord. That might make you think you went directly to be with the Lord. Uh, But I just don't think there's really a lot to go on to really say what happens between death and the judgment. I don't know that it matters. I think the focus in the New Testament is way more on the resurrection. You know, I think, you know, that's... Whatever happens to our spirit, I think we're meant to think more in terms of the resurrection as being the time when we gain our reward and and when we're judged and so forth. I've always thought if this is literal, then Abraham got shortchanged. Whose bosom did he go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what about everybody that died before him? <laughs> right. You know, so, and why would he be the comforter? I mean, it makes the illustration, and we know who, they knew who Abraham was. Right. But that doesn't fit. You wouldn't role. think as a Gentile we'd go to Abraham's bosom, perhaps. Although we have the faith of Abraham, who knows. But. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it just, it makes more sense as a parable, and I think it's, it's pretty strong evidence when he starts it the same way he does so many other parables in Luke. Other thoughts? Well, 17, 1 to 10. 